to the Messy City Podcast. This is Kevin Clickenberg. Got my friend Rob Richardson in the studio today. Rob, how's How you it doing? Going? <laughs> Good to see you. Good to see you. Um, Rob, uh, you sent me a list of topics that is uh, really awesome. It's like, I want to talk about everything on this list. <laughs> I know we're not going to get to it all, um, but I want to try to get to as much of it as we can because these are just some really, really great uh, topic areas. Um, we've known each other for like, what, 20, 25 years at this point? It, probably more than that. I was thinking it's almost 30 because we met at a Mark Long Range Forecast Committee meeting, I think, when I worked at HNTB, and that's been a long time ago. Y you have a much better memory than I do. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So uh, for those who don't know you, Rob, let's talk a little bit about uh, your background. Uh, you're a planner, but how did you come into uh, planning and, and uh, talk just sort of the short history of your bio? Well, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, so I worked for Freilich Leitner, which is kind of a boutique land use law firm that had a planning group. And I didn't get into law school where I wanted to go. And they said, well, why don't you go to planning school at KU? You like KU. And, you know, so that's what I did. So I became a planner and I got to work on a lot of interesting projects uh, at the law firm. And then I went to HNTB and um, was there a little bit. I was in mostly working for the City of Independence on different contracts, um, some really cool projects that we did the Midtown Truman Road Corridor, the first TIF projects in Independence. Hmm. Um, so then I went to work for, they hired me from HNTB to implement some of the plans I'd written. And so I was there for five years and I was director in Raymore for a little bit, like 18 months. And that was a crazy experience we could talk about for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I went to KCK to be the director and I was the director there for uh, about 17 years. And then the last two years I was there, I was kind of the fixer. So all of the different development folks in the city didn't report directly to me, but I coordinated all their work and they kind of had to listen to what I said and, you know, answer my phone calls and stuff. So mm -hmm. it was, that was really fun because I got to be the yes guy to everybody that came in the city instead of the planning directors, you know, kind of the, no, you got to do it like this guy. So it was, that was kind of fun. Huh. And then in October I started my own business, um, Richardson brothers development and, um, do development services for people in the development community. And we'll be doing some of our own development. So it's kind of an interesting, like private to public back to private, uh, sector, uh, travel for, I mean, for those who aren't familiar with Kansas city. So when you start independence is kind of a, I mean, I don't know how you describe independence. It's, it's probably the oldest city in the metro area, but we think of it as a suburb now. It's a, it's now it's a first drink suburb. You yeah. know, the river boats came in there and that's where the, tra all the, the California, Oregon, Santa Fe trails all started in independence. Mm -hmm. You know, they came up from the river and got their supplies on the square and then headed out from there. So it's a very old city. Mm -hmm. Um, but more and more modern this century times, it has kind of old industrial areas. It has, so all the pre-war stuff and industrial pre-war stuff, uh, has post-war suburbs and it has, you know, seventies, eighties, modern to now modern suburbia. So right. it's got all three, three cities and Kansas City, Kansas actually has the same thing. Right. It's just flipped east to west. Yeah. It's like the same city, but you just flop it. Yeah. And then in between those two, you had Raymore, which is basically a newer suburb. It was a tiny rural town that's become a suburb on the southern edge. Yeah, it's a fast-growing commuter suburb. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's an interesting kind of diversity of uh, communities to work on the planning side or work on the public side. Uh, what did, did they share anything? Were there shared experiences with those that were helpful, or were they just – were they all very different? Um. I would say that they all three had kind of weird politics at different times. Um, and that, you know, that's always an interesting part of the planning development side is 
uh, what are the politics and, you know, generally they were all wanting growth, but, um, not necessarily growth. Like we'll mm-hmm. probably talk about so much today, but, um, I, I guess they all needed code work. And so mm-hmm. I was kind of a code policy wonky kind of person. Mm-hmm. So I helped with a lot of code work in the cities, um, trying to expand residential choice in ways that were acceptable mm-hmm. uh, to those communities. Um, but independence and KCK were very much alike in that you had to, if you were going to write a code, you had to write it for really three different cities. Mm-hmm. You had to write it for the old city, the post-war city and the modern city. And it, and making all those codes simple and work was very challenging um, for those communities. And then, you know, what do the people say about that and how do they apply to the you know people that actually live there? Mm-hmm. And, you know, KCK is interesting because it's, it, in many ways, it's like the forgotten stepsister of the metro area. And, uh, I mean, it, it's got incredible assets as an older city, but it's just overlooked so much. And it's also, you know, largely a pretty poor uh, community. So, I mean, that must have had a ton of challenges from a planning director standpoint. Well, it is the... the urban area is relatively poor and in the last 20 years it's become very Hispanic mm-hmm. um, as opposed to in the 60s, 70s, 80s, it was largely African American. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's some conflicts there. Um, there was a lot of blight, you know, the city um, tore down over 4,000 houses mm-hmm. and about half of them, they just dumped the rubble in the basement and covered it up mm-hmm. Um, but that's a kind of a blessing and a curse. There are now there's opportunities for the type of, you know, infill development that we think is mm-hmm. great for our communities, uh, in those, in that city. Uh, but you still have uh, a lot of urban poor, a lot of homelessness. Um, but, you know, I think that we never really try to get caught up in that, you know, mm-hmm. there never been a, you know, a real policy plan done for the community. And so I kind of fought to get that done. And then that kind of suggested doing area plans. And one of the area plans I thought was key to do was for the Northeast area because it had never really had any focus on it. And that's where most of the urban poor issues were really manifesting themselves. So um, I think that was really, you know, a really positive thing for the city uh, it's a struggle to implement any plan and no plans have to change over time. But, um, and some things that I thought were, we were all on the same page for mm-hmm. five years later, they're like, I don't think we were on the same page for that. I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> so how do we fix that? You know, those kind of yeah. issues, but it's been a, it was very interesting to work in KCK. I still live there. I'm not going to move. Mm-hmm. Um, because you had a, such a variety of things, you know, there were years when we were doing more than a billion dollars of development. And we were doing small infill projects, mm-hmm. you know, so it was very, very diverse, very interesting as a director because you had all, you had all kinds of stuff to work on. You know, if you were getting tired of suburban residential, then you had the recession, then it became, you know, kind of mass industrial warehousing and, you know, huge, huge projects like uh, General Motors body and paint factory or Amazon mm-hmm. or Urban Outfitters, you know, super high tech distribution facilities. So it was very interesting. When you were uh, younger and thinking about, you know, were you working at a law firm and then you're going back to planning school? Did you ever like think planning director was a 
like something you were going to end up doing? I originally thought I would very early in my career, I'd be a developer, but that, that kind of, you know, I had a family real early. And so, um, you know, risk aversion became a thing for yeah. a while. And when we did the second TIFF project in independence homework, which was at the time, maybe the world's largest retail developer, if not certainly the nation's, you know, they were the, the development arm of Sears. Hmm. And so we got the theaters on 39th street approved with that. And, uh, Dan, the guy that represented home art and Mary, their attorney from Chicago took joy and I to dinner at a real nice restaurant here in Kansas city. Mm -hmm. And I said, so when you see this project coming, it's a $25 million project. You get 12 and a half million dollars in TIFF. You, you got, you know, 80% leased for 15 year national tenants. You know, why don't you, you know, tell home art to go away and just make that happen yourself. He says, Oh, you're right. That's an amazing project. The top one, or maybe the second best project I've ever seen. I'd never risk my family's future on that project <laughs> that stuck with me for a long time. Yeah. I mean, because basically in 12 years, you're going to own a $25 million asset. Yeah. And, and almost no risk. Right. Yeah. But that's too risky for that guy to put his family on the line for. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I remember that for a long time. My wife remembered it too. So, you know, yeah. I mean, that says a lot about <clears throat> kind of the nature of those larger, especially retail oriented projects mm -hmm. or that, that, business environment changes so quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, just the changes we've seen in the last 10 or 20 years, yeah. you know, with the internet coming around and everything else. And it's just it, every, every decade or so, it seems like a huge upheaval. So I, I, I mean, I can see that. And, and AMC was a big tenant. So we yeah. all know what's going on with AMC in the last few years. Right. You know, so. Right. Are you one of the Reddit meme stock uh, fans <laughs> for AMC? No. Um, but you know, I do a lot of scouting work and we had some kids on camp staff that were part of that and part of the GameStop thing that yeah. like one of their dads said, yeah, he made more money than I did last year. <laughs> he was God. a college student and worked at scout camp. Yeah. Some of that stuff makes me feel so old, but, um, so, I mean, one of the, one of the things we, we had the good fortune to work together a number of times. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, um, I think one of the reasons we always click, there's certain kind of development, obviously, that we both liked. We liked the older style, you know, walkable communities and, and all of that. But you, you had an interesting role, I thought, in, in KCK, like um, some of the projects we worked on together, but also stuff that I watched you do. You were always, it seemed like you were always trying to figure out how to use your role to push for as good a quality on the design side as you possibly could. And I'm curious what, you know, what you might say about that or, what advice you might give to others, especially in, you know, again, you were not in a wealthy community. It was interesting. So in, in 2004, we uh, did design guidelines and new zoning procedures. And when we went to adopt it, it was only going to be for the area west of 94th Street. So all of the new area of town. Mm -hmm. And the District 1 commissioner in the urban area that I've talked about, you know, that's experienced all this demolition, says you can't just do that. You'll create two cities that way you have to apply those design guidelines citywide. And we said, well, they're kind of an experiment. Mm -hmm. And so why don't we see how they work? And in two years, we're going to start doing um, citywide master plan. If they work, we'll just adopt them citywide as part of that master plan. And so that's what we did. Um, and, you know, it's, you got to be, you get 15% of the facade that you can play with. It's not hard materials. Um, so if you want to do fancy cornices with EFAS or something like that, I guess you could, but what well, we didn't allow EFAS, you'd have mm -hmm. to use something else, but you know, that I, 
there's a lot of different stuff out there now than there was then. I think one of the hardest things with design standards was the changing of materials like metal siding. The new Cerner office buildings are the super high tech mm-hmm. anodized stainless steel. Well, that didn't even exist really when we wrote <laughs> the design standards. And so they had to get an exception to that for that building. Um, and that's, you know, you can say what you want to about kind of the, the data shapes of the windows and spacing and all that, but that building changes color in the light. It is so cool. It can be mm-hmm. white and it can be black and every color of brown and, and bronze in between because of what the light's doing. So I think that part of it's really cool, whether you like the fenestration on the building or not. How, how much of a challenge was that for you working with uh, not just the larger entities, but smaller developers as they were trying to do things in, in KCK and pushing on them on the design side? Part of it is that if somebody's going to go do a new build, it's almost not mom and pop anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you can finance a new build that you're going to go buy a half an acre or an acre of land and build a building in a parking lot, you have the means to borrow two, three, four million dollars. Mm-hmm. That's kind of out of mom and pop range to me, right? Mm-hmm. The mom and pop stuff is in the remodeling things and the, and the reuse of the existing buildings. And so, one of the things that I've always tried to, you know, work for and worked really closely at building inspection on is, you know, how do we make these codes fit the old buildings? And then you get the, um, I forget what the name of the code is, but now there's actually an adopted code for renovating history. You know, yeah, old sure. Yeah. yeah. It's a historic, historic buildings code or something so, like that. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I thought that was great, you know, because we had issues with like, well, how, they can't rebuild the stairs. They would come out of the building. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you do that? So you'd have, you know, and, working on those kind of issues, uh, and a little bit of parking. Um, sometimes, you know, the way the codes are set up, you know, and so one thing to know about KCK is it's like the standard zoning code from the Mm seventies. It had a little bit of update in the eighties and, you know, uh, amended significantly over time. But so, you know, I had the standard standard parking regulations and, you know, you'd need, and, and the use conversions that, triggered things the building code were already hard and what did that do not only the building code but the zoning code and Mm -hmm. sometimes it was like this building over here might work better for you (laughs) (laughs) you know and um there wasn't a lot of reuse probably until after the turn of the century you know then we started you know we started seeing more and then maybe after the recession, we started seeing a lot more people went in to look at those old buildings and what can they really do with them? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of that going on at KCK right now. Yeah. yeah. And, and incremental developers and, and little guys that start with one building and they might, you know, since I've known them, they've gone from their first project and they're on project five or six now. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've kind of figured out what kind of tenants to look for and um, what kind of, what kind of spin they can do on the, on the insides and how do they, how do you really do the inside of a historic building well or, or, or not? Yeah. And, and what does it take? What is it, what is the spend on that? So it's been fun to watch that. Yeah. It's kind of, it's interesting because um, you think about some of the older neighborhoods in KCK and obviously one of the more popular ones is uh, strawberry Hill, um, w- which has a tremendous location, great old architecture, great views of, of, downtown Kansas City, Missouri and everything else. And it kind of seems like, you know, what it seems like for 20 or 25 years, people have been talking about Strawberry Hill. It's Strawberry Hill's next, Strawberry Hill's next. They're the next place up to be hot. 
and it actually seems like five years ago before Airbnb, Airbnb hit. Yeah. I mean, rich. yeah, now it seems like it's finally happened. It's like, like that, that area is really starting to pop in ways that it hadn't it, before. It's had a lot of investment in it. They've got some great restaurants and bars. You got Mockingbird and Slaps and Chicago's and several mm-hmm. others in, you know, the old colonial club, yeah. a lot of, a lot of places in there. They're great. Slaps barbecue is like my favorite place in town. Yeah. So if you're Kansas City barbecue fans and you haven't been to Slaps, you got to go to Slaps. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, they just won the the NFL draft barbecue contest too. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, huh. But the thing that really kind of hurt, I guess, Strawberry Hill in some ways is Airbnb because the net present value of a house rented out for hundred bucks a night mm-hmm. for sixty percent of the year makes that house worth like three hundred grand. Yeah. And you know, ten years ago, you could have bought houses up and down Strawberry Hill for. 65 to 85 and yeah and and it's really um i I never really thought we'd see gentrification in kansas city just Mm -hmm. because we don't grow that fast and we don't change that fast Mm -hmm. you know maybe a little bit in some of the neighborhoods around valentine and things you got some occasionally you get a high growth neighborhood but it wasn't like miles and my but airbnb is it's done in rosedale it's done at strawberry hill you know it's like all of a sudden you see a house for sale in Rosedale or Strawberry Hill for 250 or 300,000. You're like, what? Mm-hmm. That's a bungalow. You know, that when I moved to the city, you could have bought for 55 or 60. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's had a huge impact, you know, even in Midtown and, you know, that our city KCMO just passed brand new rules to strictly limit Airbnb use. But I mean, KCK obviously I think was a popular location because houses were cheap, loca- you know, location wise, it was, Still yeah. very central to everything. And we required special use permits for them because we, can, we I mean, I, I interpreted the old code to do that so that mm-hmm. we wouldn't have to write anything. And they just went through that process too and adopted uh, some new codes on that. But it, it yeah. was, um, you know, the higher property values is good because KCK had a problem. Like with my house, mm-hmm. I bought an old historic house on a roundabout mm-hmm. with a garage in the back. So it's the perfect planter house, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, the properties were so inexpensive that you, you could buy it, but you couldn't borrow any money to fix them up. Hmm. And so we would have new professionals come into the city and want to live in an urban neighborhood. Well, I can buy the house, but I can't get an appraisal on the house and I can't get an appraisal that allows me to redo the kitchen in the, in the master bathroom, mm-hmm. you know? And so those kind of issues were very real and some neighborhoods are still very real in KCK, but I think that, the higher property values are letting people improve those properties where they wouldn't have been, they might've been able to buy it for 85, but they couldn't have spent the 50 on it. They wanted to spend to make it really nice and modern and livable and update the wiring and the plumbing yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So there, there's been some good benefits to that. So, I mean, that's a common problem in a lot of places that, you know, have seen neighborhoods that have seen hard times and, and maybe now you start to think they're on the cusp of redevelopment or whatever, but you know, it's, it's almost like it's a cash economy and people can't, you know, people can't really get financing the way they would want to. Were there things from the standpoint of the city, from the city government side that you all talked about or tried to implement that could impact that? Uh, we went to every kind of conference you could imagine that and banking, talked to banking people and trying to get bankers to spend money and allocate money to spend mm-hmm. on those kind of things. And it, it really, none of that worked. Yeah. I mean, so it was, you know, and I was, invested in i kind of got lucky because we had a property bump when my you know 95 year old tile roof had to be taken off and put back on Mm -hmm. and so we were lucky to hit the 
the bump in the property values where I could actually borrow money right when I needed it, <laughs> you yeah. know, to do yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so, cause that's an expensive thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, green tile roofs from the 1920s or, yeah. Um, that tile is hard to find in the country. Yeah. Well, and it's, it, there's a reason it's a roof you replace like every hundred years. Right. So it's cool. Yeah. Uh, and, but in like your neighborhood, you know, that's, you know, that's a, that's a really nice neighborhood. It's a beautiful neighborhood. It's a national historic landmark neighbor district, Correct. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And so, so even that one, it was struggling to hit the thresholds to where you could get financing. Right. And, and, you know, another thing old neighborhoods struggle with is just people that know how to work on those houses Yeah, and what the, what the tricks are. I'm lucky I have a neighbor who grew up in the neighborhood and his dad taught him and he's worked on, you know, he moved into his parents' house and he's done that. So he's shown me some tricks of the trade for mm-hmm. old houses because, you know, we've got built in gutters, you know, I've never dealt with that before in my life, yeah. you know, and most people that move into these neighborhoods don't know any of this stuff. You know, what do you, right. how do you, how do you deal with an old rock foundation? How, you know, I, I want to change the layout of the rooms. Well, none of these two befores are those. Why do I have this dip in my wall? Cause I, I didn't fur out my two befores another quarter of an inch. Mm-hmm. Cause all the woods a different dimension. You know, there's all <laughs> these crazy, we were lucky our house had been remodeled in the sixties. And so it's got all copper plumbing and all three strand mm-hmm. wire in it. That identical house that used to be adjacent to our, or used to be connected to ours. It was like the mother-in-law house, but it's identical. You used to be able to walk between the kitchens. That's still on a boiler. still has two strand wire window units, you know, it's like, yeah. and that's a huge, I mean, we were very lucky and I probably wouldn't have bought the house if it hadn't been. It's just that, I mean, yeah. I know enough about the building trades to know that would have been a terrible project. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the narrow lot stuff that we mm-hmm. worked on. So, uh, God, I don't even know when we did this. Do you remember when we did the 2006 work? or 2008? Maybe. Yeah. So you hired my old firm to help you all work on some design guidelines basically for narrow lots. Why don't you talk about like why, what was the genesis for that? Genesis for that? What were you, what were you all trying to do from the city side? So I talked earlier about the 4,000 lots that got demolished. So we had those 4,000 lots that were demolished by the city or houses and probably another 2000 that were done privately. So we had 6,500 lots that didn't conform to the current zoning code. They Mm -hmm. were less than 50 feet wide. Um, And so anytime anybody wanted to build a house, you had to, you know, replat the lot and get variances. And it, it just made the, instead of being able to walk in and get a building permit mm-hmm. in a day or two, it took you 90 to 180 days to get through the process to build an urban house. And mm-hmm. so we want to do something to, to kind of rectify that. Right. So we thought if we did a new zoning code that allowed people to build on the 25 foot lots, that'd be great. But at the time, politically, they want to make sure that that didn't allow people to bring in a, a home on a trailer and set it on blocks right? and, and call that good. Right. <clears throat> and that's probably, you know, I don't know. We won't talk about whether that's good or bad. Yeah. Um, so we had design guidelines that kind of said, you know, meet the neighborhood. One of my, one of the tragedies I think in this world is the street in San Francisco, the old Victorian townhouses. And then somebody built the modern one where there's a fire and somebody built a modern one. I mean, <laughs> That, that's a, to me, that's a tragedy. So I, yeah. you know, and then we have the, the professor at KU that likes to build his shoe boxes and then move them into oh, yeah. beautiful urban neighborhoods. Oh, yeah. And, you know, so we're trying to kind of limit some of that stuff and how do how do you do this and make it work? Um, and so we made it so you could build a single family home on a 25 foot lot without a variance. 
And I think the tricky thing we did there that was really cool was they said in single family zoning, if you own the whole face of the block, and there are hundreds of block faces, obviously, that are the, mm-hmm. you could buy the whole block um, from the land bank or, or get it acquired privately. You could build a flat over flat duplex on each end, a couple of single family houses, and then fill the middle with attached townhouses. So you could go from a, a lot that might have had eight houses on it to one that might have 16 or 20 houses on it mm-hmm. in those urban neighborhoods. And, and we allowed ADUs um, within that. Um, and it, I thought it would just be like a rocket ship taking off and we would do hundreds of them. Mm-hmm. In the first five years, I think there were 60 of them done, mm-hmm. which in urban KCK, that, that seems like a lot. It was a lot. Um, I was hoping it would have been 10 times that. Right. But right. Um, that was, uh, and there were issues, you know, we wanted front porches and we wanted to walk up to it and, you know, we wanted garages in the back off of alleys and, Within the first two or three years, we did a couple of amendments to, you know, where the, you know, now when you build a new subdivision, it's graded so that you can, um, the land rises up to the house a little bit so that Mm -hmm. you don't have drainage issues. And, you know, a lot of these older neighborhoods, you had really steep hills, you had um, weird topography that you didn't want to force people to change. And so we made some amendments about how the house related to the street and, and elevation and, um, if, if you had to use alleys or not, um, you know, because we have, there's a great, there's a great, um, three or four of them, uh, on Strawberry Hill, the North end of Strawberry Hill by the, um, KU hospital there, the new KU part of KU mm-hmm. there where they, um, the alley, you could have put a garage on the house, but the garage would have been the third floor of the house. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, how do you use the garages and set them back? And I, I think that, you know, they look pretty good and they fit with the neighborhoods where they've done that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think it was very effective. And then during the recession, actually, um, we almost got to the point we were probably 40, we're normally would be like 90, 10, 90% suburban homes, 10% urban we got to about 40, 60 hmm. on the permit, you know, but we were only doing 120, 150 permits a year then instead of 500. But yeah, you know, doing 70 or 80 urban houses a year, that's a great, you know? Yeah. I mean, that seems like still for KCK, that's a big accomplishment, especially right. if they're able to get it through in an easier permitting process. Right. What were, I mean, what were some of the things that builders uh, pushed back on, you know, for the, for the guidelines? Uh, we had a extra landscaping. So we had like, three bushes and two trees instead of one tree. Um, so, you know, the builders don't like that necessarily. Um, and we had 50 year material requirements. Mm -hmm. Um, and most of them got around, just said, okay, we'll use Hardy Ward. You know, Mm -hmm. um, one of the hardest things is when you're on these 25 foot lots, the fire code gets you because you have to have firewall, you know, your, your interior walls end up being, uh, between the two houses end up being firewalls. So that makes it hard to have windows and things. And so right. we've, we've worked through some of those issues with the builders. Um, I think those were about the most significant things. You know, there were some tr- really some topographic issues we dealt oh, yeah. with. And um, well, all those neighborhords have Hill in the name for a reason. I mean, they're all ex- <laughs> extremely steep. This is true. Yeah. Uh, um, so that's, I think those were the, the biggest things. I, I didn't really go back and look at that before we talked today, but, those are the things I remember off the top of my head. Yeah. I remember seeing a bunch of them that, that did end up with the garage off the front. Uh, and then, but like a porch, you know, over the top of it or whatever. And mm-hmm. I thought, you know, 
given the topo considerations, the, the, a lot of those came out really well. Yeah. And if you look at it from the long view down the street, so if they're on the other corner and you're looking at it, you don't really see them, mm-hmm. you know, if, as you drive by and you see them, but you know, and, um, I don't know that it's bad to see the garage necessarily, but you know, in those old neighborhoods, a lot of the houses didn't ha- didn't have garages when they were built before you right. needed a garage. And, you know, a lot of the garages were built after the fact off the back alley. Um, and a lot of those alleys were even barely, you know, drivable. Well, originally they were probably drivable, but yeah. over time we did zero alley maintenance. And, you know, yeah. I, we, we might've worked on our first alleys in KCK in decades, probably in the, 20, 2010, 2012 range. Yeah. To help, to help with some of the urban development, you know, CHWC uh, community housing in that County was doing a lot of urban housing and, you know, they just needed our help on that. Yeah. Who were, uh, uh, I know a little bit about CHWC and, and it's interesting to mention them. I mean, were, who, who were the people who were building most of these new houses? Oh, well, when I started, it was almost exclusively CHWC and then, um, which is a housing nonprofit housing, yeah. nonprofit. city vision was a housing, not for profit, excuse me, not for profit that doesn't yeah. exist anymore. And that was it. Those two were building almost everything. Mm-hmm. And so we worked really closely with them on all the infill stuff and, and their issues with getting all the variances on those old lots were really what prompted me to think about, well, how do we fix this? Mm-hmm. And today, is that still the case where, I mean, are they the dominant ones or are there have for-profit people come in in the last several years? So CHWC still builds urban housing. Mm-hmm. Um, in Douglas Sumner, they built some there. I'd say they're still probably the dominant one, but there are some private folks doing things now. Yeah. Um, one of the big things that kind of spurred that was we, um, for a long time, we didn't take actual structures into our land bank through the tax sale. And then we said, what if we take them into, what if we pre-certify remodelers and we take these structures into the tax sale, through the tax sale, we're going to demolish them at some point anyway, mm-hmm. you know, if, if they get too bad and let them bid on them. And we know we're not going to get very much from them, but we did 70 or a hundred in the first two years. And they went from $4,000 properties to 80 to $250,000 properties. So they, they were buying them and remodeling them. Yeah. These were, these were, these were structures that were on our demolition list Mm -hmm. that we saved. Mm -hmm. It was like, that's okay. That's a hundred lots. We don't have to refill in the future. Yeah. But when people started seeing that those remodeled nicer homes would make money, then some other people started looking to get land bank properties. And the land bank has been much more active in selling properties for the, for building homes, whether it's, I want to go build one for myself or somebody wants to get a block or, mm-hmm. you know, we have some, there's a couple of areas where if you figured out how to buy six lots, you'd have 25 acres with yeah. the streets already built Jeez. on a grid. Yeah. I mean, it's been it, huge areas. It's not Detroit, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it is crazy when you start to think about the magnitude of four to 6,000, you know, vacant lots, you know, in, in one city. Right. So, um, on the remodel, the remodel program, I think it's interesting as well, because that's something that a ton of cities just struggle with all the time. And you all were doing it too, where it's like, you got all these houses that are deteriorating, they're vacant, they're abandoned. Should we just pay money to tear them down? And it's like a big source of controversy within planning and politics for years, which is, do we allocate like $5 million to just tear all these houses down and get them ready for development or do well, something well, else? KCK brought the National Guard in. Huh. And at the time, it was probably the right thing because there, there probably wasn't a market then. I mean, we've had, you know, we kind of created this market and how we did 
did that, but the increase in construction costs and, um, you know, I think more um, young people wanting to live in urban areas and being not afraid of urban areas and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, I think all those things kind of led to that being able to be possible. I think when they started demolishing houses, there was no market. Yeah. I mean, I didn't think I'd, I, I grew up in a suburb, you know, south of Lee Summit yeah. in a private lake community. I never thought I would live in urban KCK. You know, I was born in KCK at KU. I'm a Jayhawk, you know, from birth, but <laughs> I never thought I'd be back there. But when I moved here, I, the people were great. And, mm -hmm. you know, so we stayed and, but still there wasn't a great market, you know, yeah. for a lot of those years in the late 60s, 70s, 80s, it, there wasn't a, a market to sell. Yeah. Yeah. So, but even then it sounds like this, this idea of sort of pre-certifying, um, a property. I mean, how, how different is that from what you were doing before or what you see other cities do? Well, we would just let them sit on the, on the tax sale rolls and nobody would buy them and they would just deteriorate. And then, you know, we would use some of our federal funds, um, mm -hmm. to tear them down. Yeah. And, you know, so if you tear down a house today, it probably costs you 20 to $25,000 to get it torn down and then you get to mow it for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but, couple thousand bucks a year yeah. versus if you save that house and it gets put back on the, you give them a 10 year tax abatement, mm -hmm. and it, but it's on the tax roll. It's being maintained. You got somebody living there, spending their sales tax, you know, their money and generating sales tax dollars. And then eventually you start getting money back for that. It's economically, it's a no brainer. Yeah. But the, the trick is, you know, the first one we were worried about, can you get a mortgage on that house after it's been taken out of the, in a tax sale, put through the land bank, so we got through that that first hurdle. We figured that out. Now it's just kind of routine, but we can't buy houses for the land bank out of the tax sale anymore because the people are that like that business model are buying them directly from the tax sale. So they don't have to interesting. Go. Yeah. So we don't. Even, I mean, they don't even get to. I say we. I don't work there anymore, but they don't get to buy those out of the tax sale anymore. Well, I mean, that seems like a win, though. That's I mean, a huge win. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so it when you were doing it that way, if I'm, if it's just me and I'm trying to, I want to buy one of those houses, I want to do it. What, what, what would I do? What was the steps that you I just would take? went to the land bank and you, you fill out their form to say that, Hey, I, you know, I know how to buy, hire a plumber and a electrician and I have the funding to do, you know, I have the mm -hmm. ability to borrow the funds to do this and make this project happen within a year yeah. or 18 months. And then you all as staff did some sort of background verification on that yeah. basically. Yeah. And, and we had, very high success rate. Mm -hmm. Um, they, uh, and you wouldn't believe some of the houses that they saved. Yeah. I mean, holes in the roof and the second floor and the first floor and water in the basement. Yeah. And they would take that and fix it. Yeah. The ones that we had the hardest problem with were where you had like, it had a wall fall out, mm -hmm. but even a couple of those that had weird situations like that, people, people took. I mean, I feel like this is almost like a conference session in and of itself, you know, where mm -hmm. it's like you, you could probably speak just that. to this topic for, <laughs> yeah, for over now. Were there other cities that were doing something like this that you noticed or is this something that you all just kind of came up with? Um, so we had a, a gathering of basically all the development and department heads and all the people involved in development and taxes and, and some of the next level down out at, you know, one of the park, um, buildings one February day. And 
just said, how do we get out of our silos and help that and figure this stuff out? And, mm -hmm. and all that kind of came out of that day. Hmm. Um, you know, we looked a little bit at Detroit and, um, Cleveland and places like that, but that's a, um, we really kind of self-generated that. Yeah. I just mean, because I, there was like, there's this huge problem. We know we got to fix it. Right. We can't let it keep, we can't keep just tearing down houses or we don't have a city left. Right. And we don't have a population left to support downtown or any of those kind of things. Yeah. I mean, it feels like, uh, it's almost like part of the strong towns mantra here as well, which was like, you just got together and figured out something locally that made sense for, for you all. And what, what the, what the specific case was in KCK and how you could deal with it. Yeah, I, that's, that's very true. I mean, yeah. and you know, we had support to do it, yeah. you know, our goal I think was to touch 5,000 properties in three or four years or 10,005 or something. Yeah. And yeah, we did. That's incredible. That's incredible. Huh? Well, uh, back on like the new construction side then. So it, it sounds like it, it, it would seem logical to me that once you are established this, success rate with rehabs and uh, stabilizing a lot of properties and other things that that ought to start to generate more of a market for new construction, uh, especially on some of those narrow lots. And are you seeing any of that or does that seem yeah, like there, it's there's happen? some and there's, you know, um, I, there's a little bit of ones and twos, you know, going on I want to buy this and build it for myself or my kid or whatever. Yeah. There's two or three, kind of like bigger focus projects out there um, along parallel where you've got, you know, five to 25 acres that are there. Hmm. And um, those are taking longer. I mean, just, it's hard. I mean, the bank, the banks, you know, they don't redline anymore yeah. in theory. <laughs> um, but, you know, you still got to show that you've got a workable project, yeah. right? And um, who are your tenants going to be in your retail space? Well, you're not going to go sign Old Navy to a 3,000 square foot, you know, yeah. 15 year lease right there. You know, it's going to be small people that aren't going to sign long term leases and, you know, to build commercial space. I think a lot of the urban commercial space that gets built is some something that you do it small enough that the rest of the project, even if it never became a commercial space, you, you're still okay. Yeah. It's just a benefit if it fills up. Yeah. And, you know, it's one thing with some of the plans that you see about, you know, you want all this mixed use development. Well, very few places can support 100% first floor commercial and everything you do. Yeah. I mean, you don't even see that in the big cities, right? Yeah. But a lot of the codes got written that way early when you were doing the mixed use codes and stuff. Oh, Not sure. you, but in general, well, we, we all, planners. We all got enthusiastic, right. you know, about it. And there's been a lot of over, there was uh you know, there was a problem for years and years where things weren't allowed. Right. And then we overcorrected and almost tried to, you know, I think the planning profession in general has tried to force too much ground floor commercial in places where it's just not ever really going to work. Right. And, you know, when we ended up doing the plan for downtown KCK, um, there are streets that are commercial now that under that plan wouldn't be in the future just yeah. because there's not that much demand in that area for it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you still just don't have enough rooftops and uh, and purchasing power to really support. If we fill up with six thousand lots, well, there you go. So get working on that. Well, right. you're not there anymore, so right. you can't do it. Well, uh, you can do it in other ways. You can do maybe. it on the private side. Right. 
so one of the other fun projects we worked on was uh, a greenfield project. Uh, and uh, we had a client, uh, a home builder, who hired us to do a master plan uh, for about a 150-acre site out in western KCK um, just before the recession. That <laughs> could not have had worse timing. Could not have had worse timing. Really great project called New Market. Um, this was one of those, as I think back over the years, it just hurts me as much as anything. It's just so painful that this project never got built. But, uh, there, there was a lot of, a lot of really interesting aspects to that. That was a walkable, uh, community on purpose. We did a lot of interesting things in terms of the little commercial center that was going to happen. They even put the first phase infrastructure in the ground and then the economy collapsed and it just, you know, it never happened. But, I'm curious about like from the city side, I know from the private, from the developer side and the design side, some of the stuff that we went through and, and how painful that all was, but what, what was it like on the, when as being part of the city government? Well, it was very exciting because you have a developer that, and I don't know if he had a final plat approved, but he might've had his, his full preliminary plat for a regular cul-de-sac subdivision and his first final plat done. Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't want to do this. Yeah. And this is a guy who basically built one of our suburbs yeah. in Kansas City. I mean, he is a big time builder. Yeah. And quite frankly, if he had done that, he would have been out of that before the recession hit. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, but when he came to me, he says, I want to do a new town. I'm like, well, we don't have the we don't have the ordinances for that. He's like, Well, if I pay Kevin and you get you two work it out, are you good with that? And I'm like, awesome. So <laughs> We did that, and uh, you know we had strong support from the mayor and the and the county leadership, uh, city leadership, and it was a great process. I think the only hiccup we had, probably one of the only times in my career I got yelled at, was um, we had issues with the narrow streets and the fire department. Right, and um, the mayor asked me one day why we were having hold up and why we hadn't gotten through yet, and I told him. And the admin, one of the people in the administrator's office, who I'm still very good friends with, was like, why did the hell did you tell the mayor about that? And I'm like, <laughs> he asked me. <laughs> it's like, well, you can't go tell the mayor things like that. We've got to work those out internally. And I'm like, okay. But what I learned is we solved the problem. I got yelled at and life went on as normal. So we got, yeah. we got it done. And yeah. they, uh, you know, there, there have been three other tries at that, um, and there's another one, and I'm actually they're one of my clients now to help them figure that out and what they can do with it. And but the infrastructure that was put in has got to come out. I mean, the yeah. curbs, the sanitary, or the, all the sewers and um, stormwater and curbs and first layer of asphalt is now an expense instead of a benefit. Yeah. It's just been it's been 15 years, I know, and it hasn't been used, and the curbs are popping out and. So what happened, I would imagine there must have been some pressure after that all went back to the bank, uh, which it did. Uh, there must have been some pressure to quickly, you know, approve a new plan to or to do anything else on that side. Or w- what happened internally on your end? Well, there, you know, it's adjacent to 435. So there's always been a desire on the development side to have more density there than what the community mm-hmm. wants, because the history of KCK is basically anybody that could afford to moved out of the city and moved out West to get away from the city issues that were going on. Mm-hmm. And so they see density as a city issue that they don't want to bring to where they moved away. Yeah, sure. Bring out to them what they moved away from. Um, and so 
you know, I think we had maybe what 160 or 120 apartments in there, one little apartment yeah. section in there. Um, and everybody's always wanted to expand that. There wasn't a lot of pressure on it. I mean, everybody was like the, the recession was so bad. Everybody was focused on other things. You know, we had, we had, you know, rotating layoffs and, and salary reductions and all kinds of things in the city that people were more focused on than that. The recession was, I, I, I don't even think that that caught people's eye until after the recession was done. It was mm -hmm. just, you know, almost every subdivision in KCK went back to the bank mm -hmm. during the recession. Um, I think this developer kept one by trading others around uh, to keep the one that they were working on. Mm -hmm. um, and they've had the finances to, you know, fix some of the bills of the recession for their own benefit. Yeah. Uh, and maybe one other that we didn't, you know, the only people that were building any houses were um, guys that kind of had a sugar daddy that would, you know, out of his, write the check out of his account and it wasn't through a bank. You weren't built. Yeah. You weren't getting any, any construction loans out of a bank uh, at the time. Uh, so yeah, I, I, th I think it just went over people's head and yeah. it, it disappeared until it, until somebody got interested in it and, and it came back. Yeah. But the recession, I mean, the recession was really, I mean, it, there were a lot of um, very, painful issues in KCK uh, beyond that subdivision or any of the subdivisions out West. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine it probably had a huge impact overall on city revenues. And that must've been because you had a lot of your revenues were driven by some of the new growth out West anyway, which kind of came to a halt. So, um, well, one of the other things that I know that you you and I've talked a lot about and that you have a big interest in was really expanding like the bicycle network, uh, in, in whatever ways that you could, uh, I'm curious, like why, first of all, why did you have an interest in, in that? Um, well, I was, a I rode my bike a lot as a kid till I got a car. And even after I got a car, I still rode a lot, but I mean, I was riding six or eight miles to school every day. Mm -hmm. And, um, then we would ride, you know, from Lee Summit out to Lone Jack on 50 Highway and not get passed by any cars at, you know, three <laughs> o'clock in the afternoon, which you, you laugh because you know now that yeah. you, that would be, that'd be impossible. That'd be impossible to do. Um, and so I've always liked riding, um, always been a big sidewalk person and, um, in Independence and in KCK really had to fight with the city engineers to get sidewalks added to major thoroughfares, hmm. um, maybe to the point of, a little bit of ridicule. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it was kind of ugly, but it worked. Um, I didn't know how else to get it done. So, yeah. you know, whatever tactics you have to use to make good things happen, sometimes you use those, but um, I'm probably not as proud of that, but <laughs> in the end it's, it's been good. Yeah. Um, you know, another, so we, in 2012, I think we did a bike and or a sidewalk and trails plan. Mm -hmm. We couldn't call it a bike plan because politically so we had to call it sidewalk and trails. it just would have it just would have been torpedoed if you called it a bike plan from the get-go yeah um uh but i was actually riding my bike to the drive-in movie night at the boulevard drive-in to promote the plan and i got hit <laughs> riding my bike mm -hmm. <laughs> i still suffer from that i get a couple bad discs and a couple bad vertebrae from that but mm. um the irony of that has never left me <laughs> yeah um and and it's hard to do, you know, it's hard. And if you look at, you know, kind of being competitive in the metro area, you know, it was kind of always one of the thoughts in my back of my head, whether it was retail or residential or your community, 
you know, if you're doing retail, you want my mom as a customer. Mm -hmm. Um, she's got, she can go wherever she wants to shop and she doesn't go to places that aren't nice. So you gotta be nice. If you want the folks with disposable income, you go, uh, you gotta build something nice, you know? And so that was kind of in the back of my head. But also if you look at what do people, um, look at when they're moving and schools is obviously number one, Mm -hmm. which KCK is not going to win that battle. Mm-hmm. It will in the urban area. I think our schools are great and, you know, we can compete with Kansas City, Missouri and, and other urban districts, but you're not going to compete with Blue Valley or right. Lee Summit or Blue Springs or something like that. Um, but then you start looking at amenities. Well, you can, we have a great urban network with sidewalks that need help um, and, and bike paths and sidewalks are one that they're expensive, but they're not outrageously expensive that you can't start to provide some of that stuff and look at your network and how that's going to work to build your city in the future. And so that's kind of where I focused on those. What, what amenities can we provide as a community that, you know, maybe the development community will build a lot of it for us and we can fill in the gaps and, and really mm-hmm. make our city better that way and more competitive that way. Cause on number one, we don't score very well. Mm-hmm. So let's see what we can do for number two. Yeah. And, and you, it seems like when we talked about this over the years, you, you really tried to focus a lot more even on like the trail portion or, or off street paths for biking as a, as a way for KCK to really get rolling. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, we, it was definitely part of the plan and trying to figure that out, you know, was, um, was difficult. Um, and we did a lot of work along Turkey Creek, trying to extend the bike path along the Creek. Mm-hmm. And, um, we actually did it as part of a, a street reconstruction project where we didn't actually put our portion along the Creek. Um, we did ours on street and, um, uh, that was a very successful project and actually gets a lot of use. And I see people on it all the time. And, mm-hmm. um, if you look at the old pictures of Merriam Lane versus what it is now, yeah. you know, it's great. And, but I've always thought biking on the street was I mean, if you're, if you knew what you're doing, you'd probably be okay. But, you know, I've had friends hit, I mean, you know, one of our colleagues, uh, husband was almost killed, mm-hmm. you know, um, I got hit and I know what I'm doing. I yeah. mean, you know, I know what to look out for, but when the guy tries to get between you and the semi truck and his mirror catches, catches your handlebar, yeah. you know, you get there, you can't avoid the idiot drivers. And, and so um, I, I love the protected bike lane stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would love to, my dad has like an old Honda motorcycle that we, it's a cool old sixties bike. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my drive to work was like two miles, right? It would be yeah. perfect, but I got hit like in my car three times. I'm like, I'm not getting on something that doesn't have protection in this, yeah. you know, this, in this urban area. Um, and, and riding around. So it's like, how do you, how do you make that work? Cause as a kid living out kind of by the country, yeah. I rode my bike everywhere. Right. You know, I had a dirt bike and we had trails and then, you know, we could ride into Lee summit and go to Dairy Queen or whatever, you know, we could, we had all kinds of freedom that my kids yeah. never had. Yeah. I'm like, you're not riding on the street here. Yeah. I mean, I had the same thing as, but I was in a small town, yeah. you know, a small town of 20,000 people. And I just rode my bike everywhere as a kid yeah. for, you know, for years and years as a little kid too. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, and I, I'd love to give my kids that kind of freedom in the city, but I, I'm terrified to let them do that. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, loaded up the, we had to load up the bikes and go to the Merriam bike trail, you yeah. know, go to the farmer's market, Merriam, unload yeah. the bikes. 
ride for an hour and put yeah. them, light them back up and go back yeah. home. Yeah. So you also, but then you, uh, and I think it's part of the challenge too in, in Kansas City. We, I mean, I think we're both, we like biking. I got an e-bike. I love, I love e-biking. I think it's awesome. I think the potential for a lot of it's incredible, but we're still, you know, we're not Denver. We're not Minneapolis. We're not Portland where there's like a huge biking culture. And that may, we may get there one day and I hope we do, but it's just not the case now. So there's a lot of tension with trying to even design and pay for bike facilities. Yeah. I, I think we're going to get there though. You know, um, growing up, I never thought I'd live in an urban neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know, but I do. My, my kids all want to live like river market to crossroads, hmm. you know? And so, um, I think with the newer generation, that's more, they like the urban lifestyle that they like that, you know, they're more willing to live there. I think we're going to get a lot more of those facilities. Same with the streetcar, you know, you're going to get a yeah. lot more support for that kind of stuff as we move forward. Um, you know, I grew up driving like 40 minutes to my parents' business. Yeah. You know, I don't like the 40 minute drive. Yeah. <laughs> I like my four minute drive. <laughs> 40 minutes is good for putting a podcast on though. It so. is good for uh, that's yeah, that's it's good now that I have I'm driving 40 minutes a lot now. Yeah. with from one of my clients, but yeah, so the podcasts are great for that. Yeah. So were there other lessons learned from the bike uh your what did you call it your uh, bike and pedestrian plan? Sidewalk and trail plan. Sidewalk and trail plan. Were there other lessons learned from that that were um, useful from KCK's perspective? Well, one of the things we did, I thought was very smart on the contract is we had them use interns to do all of our survey work. So they hired, um, KU grad school interns to do, uh, and other interns to do all the survey work, which, huh. so we got all of our sidewalks in the city surveyed for like $6,000, Wow! which if the company would have done it, it would have been $25,000. Yeah. So that was a good like strategy to, that, that was something I like, this is a perfect use for interns. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they did, that was a good learn from that. Um, I should have fought harder for a couple of things. Um, Johnson County water one did a, um, water line through Western KCK and I had him agreed to build a bike path along like 15 miles of bike path. Mm -hmm. And one person's friend didn't want bikes running through his front yard. And one person that had a vote on the plan got it killed. Uh, and so I would, I should have fought harder for that. I should have, you know, done everything I can. I mean, you know, the value of a 15 mile bike oh path is yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, you got to fight for some of those things, um, when you can, and maybe that all happened so late in the process and I just wouldn't have, I didn't have a chance. I, you know, it's been a long time ago now, but mm-hmm. you know, you got to fight for some of that stuff when it comes up and it's available to fight for it. Um, the looking for easy linkages to other facilities was a key to that plan. Um, you know, if we could link to Turkey Creek and the Johnson County system, that's a win because then we get hundreds of miles of trails that our people have access to that we didn't have to pay for. Right. And then, you know, going north of the Missouri River, convincing MoDOT and KDOT to put a bike lane on the bridge out of Fairfax. Um, gets us, you know, you just drive ride through Fairfax and you can get to Riverside and Parkville bike trails. Right. Yeah. Um, and then really back around Kansas City, Missouri, because then you can get back over to Burlington and, you know, 
it just opens up the world to you mm -hmm. or across the viaduct through the West bottoms, you know, that, that link was kind of in the works um, when I started, but those kind of things were very important to a, a poor urban community that wasn't going to go build a hundred miles of bike trails in five years, right. You know, making those links available and then figuring out how to get spines through the community mm -hmm. to do that. And then, apply for federal grants, because I will tell you that some of the suburban communities tried to re redo the rating scale after I went in, I got four of the top five projects. <laughs> I couldn't afford them all. Right. I had to pick right. because we couldn't afford to afford to do all those, but, um, urban projects score well. And, um, but that was kind of a fun, you know, to call them out on why they were wanting to do that because they, what they agreed to before was a great scoring method and what the metro area needed when they didn't win, they, they got, and we got to change the method. They got to be crybabies about it. Yeah. <laughs> that's the way, it, that's the way the things always go. Right. Right. They have the plan. And then if it doesn't work, somebody the, the other it. thing I think you have to do with bike paths and bike planning, um, that was always even back into independence, what makes sense for the non-professional biker? All right. Yeah. You know, for a long time, the bike clubs ran, the metro area bike infrastructure right. for the way they rode. Well, the way you and I might ride as very experienced cyclists is not how the world rides. Right. And if you want the world to, to support your program, you need to build it to the way the world can get through it and, and use it safely. Yeah. And sometimes that means you have to go a little bit out of your way. And if you want to stay in the lane, you are, you, you are free under state law to stay in the lane, but the safe path Mm -hmm. is to go where you don't have to look five directions at an intersection. Yeah. You know, on an interstate, yeah. you go down the ramp a little bit, cross where you're only seeing, you only have to look at what's coming down the ramp at you and come back up to the sidewalk. Yeah. If you stay in the lane, stay in the lane. Good, yeah. good for you, good for me, whatever. But I, th I think you have to look at some of those issues when you, who's going to use this? How do you build your market? And, you know, building your market isn't always building it to what the bike club wants. Yeah, I think there's that. Sorry, bike club. <laughs> well, it's true. There's that famous survey that was done, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. I think it was in Portland area, but it just tried to classify the types of cyclists and something like 60% or two thirds were what they called interested, but concerned. You know, they might, might want to ride a bike, but they're really concerned mm -hmm. about their safety, um, which is, I think, how most of us are. I'm, <clears throat> I'm really not much different from that. I, I'm not a uh, now that I've got the e-bike, I'll go a lot more places than I used to go um, because I have more control and more ability to get out of a bad situation quickly. Um, but I'm still really cautious and I'll, I'll go up on sidewalks if I need to and do things that are not, you know, what you're supposed mm -hmm. to do, right. you know, as a hardcore cyclist. Yeah. And, you know, since I've been hit, I've probably ridden less than a mile on a road and I was on the yeah. Katy trail and part of the trail was out and we had to ride on the highway. Yeah. And you know me, I'm a pretty confident, I don't get scared a lot. Yeah. I did not like it when those cars went by me. Yeah. And I never, I, I mean, I didn't think it would affect me that much because I'd have, I mean, I've had bad crashes. I mean, mm -hmm. I've cracked helmets and, you know, whatever. And, you know, I got on one of the MS 150s, I got my front wheel caught in a, in a railroad track that kind of crossed the road at a funny angle. <laughs> and like, threw me off the bike, oh, way geez. off the bike. And, you know, and none of that ever bothered me getting hit has probably had more of a subconscious impact on me than I would have realized. I still haven't fixed that bike. Huh. I mean, so it's, <laughs> you so still got the bike. I still have the bike. Yeah. Interesting. But it's, um, 
and I have another road bike, but I haven't. And riding on like the Indian Creek Trail isn't fun with those because you can't go fast enough. Maybe you should take that old mangled bike and hang it up on the wall somewhere like a monument. Yeah, it isn't mangled that bad. Um, it really just needs a derailleur and the front wheel trude a little bit. It yeah. didn't get run over. It was more you that got mangled, not the. Yeah, bike. I got flipped over the car. I mean, yeah. I my back hit the where the window comes down on the back, yeah. and so that's what. And then I was laying in the middle of Seventh Street, south of Kansas Avenue. Mm. I'm like, am I going to get run over? And I, I was hurt. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. it was not good. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's, that is a perfect case in point of what people are scared about, mm-hmm. you know, that, and, and for good reason, because there are, you know, there is a lot of, a lot of very inattentive drivers. And if you don't have some protection, you could end up like that. Yeah. You have inattentive drivers and you just have flat mean people. I mean, yeah. yeah. On one of the MS-150, somebody just ran over a guy because he was on a bike on the highway. You know, <sighs> I mean, so. Yeah. It's. You got to be careful. And I think providing some good infrastructure for that. And, you know, one of the things we did on our general road standards on arterial and collector streets is one side is uh, a minimum of eight foot. But if, if you don't have other obstructions, 10 or 12 feet hmm. so that you can call it a multi-use path and you can actually ride your bike on it and, mm-hmm. and be legal. And, you know, yeah, so that you can uh, get off those streets and have a little bit of barrier between you and the cars and stuff. Yeah. But you still have to be careful, you know, and you can't. Yeah. And the, if you're riding a bike, obey the traffic laws, because when you don't obey the traffic laws, it infuriates the drivers mm-hmm. and that makes all of us look bad. And then they don't care if they hit us. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and I mean, there's so much of that that goes on and in the motorcycle community too. Yeah. I mean, they do you know, the guys that do the crazy stuff that make everybody mad. Then, you know, yeah. it has an impact on everybody. Yeah. Well, it makes the drivers angry and, and then they just, feel more justified and you know being an asshole yeah. if they want to be right so you see the bike club go through and they don't stop at a stoplight they just all roll through it or, or yeah. the stop sign I'm like yeah that does not none of us any good yeah yeah um there's a lot more that we could talk about but i you know we've already done an hour so we should probably wrap it here <laughs> really <laughs> believe it or not it goes by quickly um but it's cool. We'll, we'll do this again because there's a whole bunch of stuff I want to talk about related to like the political side of the job and, you know, work, oh, yeah. working on all, all, all through that. Uh, especially you had three different cities now and you also had experience on the private side with it. So there's a lot to dive into there. Um, so, but I do want to wrap it up and I'm going to ask you the question that other people ask, you know, this is the messy city podcast. So I like to hear from people about what they think of as a place they consider messy or more organic or bottom up that uh, that you know and love you know, it could be a neighborhood could be a whole city what what comes to mind when you hear that well i think you know kck you know has got to be my messy city but yeah. we were kind of talking beforehand i'm like i was trying to figure out what wasn't a messy city yeah. and it's like overland park kansas it's rebuilt all of their old infrastructure already you know, and it has all neat, nice new curb streets and sidewalks. I mean, that, that's not a messy city. Right. But beyond that, I don't know what isn't a messy city. Even even some of the suburbs that had old downtowns and had older areas, yeah. you know, if they haven't gone through and rebuilt all that stuff, I mean, they have some of those issues. They have got combined sewers and we haven't even talked about combined sewers or anything like <laughs> that. You know, if you got a combined sewer, you're probably a messy city. <laughs> At least you smell like one in the summer. Oh, uh, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> But yeah. KCK has a lot of issues um, that we've talked about a lot of them, but you know, I, in independence, I thought I knew politics and then I got to KCK and you know, it's, it was bigger. Yeah. Was there, 
outside of your neighborhood in KCK, was there a part of the city that you think of that you really enjoy the most? Um, I would say the Strawberry Hill Central Avenue area, you know, is really, really cool. And there's a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. A lot of really vibrant businesses that are both uh, American and, mm-hmm. and um, Latino businesses and a mm-hmm. good mix and um all there's a strong food truck game down there right now too yeah, i don't know if incredible. you've been over there it's, it's uh. there's a lot of good food trucks and good restaurants and yeah. you know the taco trail on kck is great so yeah it's some of the best food in the <coughs> in the whole area but you know no doubt about it yeah all right well thanks rob this was a lot Thank of fun you. and uh we'll do it again good deal all right take care <laughs>